Mrs. Roosevelt Don't hang your head and cry His mortal flesh is laid away But his good work fills the sky Hello, I'm Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. My uh, guest today, very honored to have him here, is Dr. H.W. Brands. He's one of America's uh, great historians, uh, in my humble opinion, and the opinion of many others. He serves as a distinguished professor of history at the University of Texas in Austin. He's written several prize-winning books about American presidents and founding fathers, including books on Benjamin Franklin, Teddy Roosevelt, Andrew Jackson, and Ronald Reagan. His most recent book um, is about the abolition of slavery in America, and it's called The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. But one of my personal favorite biographies of any American president, um, and one that I believe is timely right now, due to our new president citing the need for an FDR-like first 100 days of his presidency, is a book by Dr. H.W. Brands called Traitor to His Class, The Privileged Life and Radical Presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This, my friends, is a great book, and it's, it's one I actually buy as, as, as gifts for friends and family over the years, because it's, um, it's so profound to learn not just the history of Franklin Roosevelt, but, you know, who he was, where he came from, why he did the things that he did, and why he upset so many in the wealthy class when he was, in fact, one of them. Traitor to his class uh, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and a national bestseller. As I said, it's a brilliant book about the qualities that made Franklin Roosevelt one of America's most beloved, popular, and successful presidents. And I'm pleased to have its author with us today, H.W. Brands. Bill, welcome to Rumble. Happy to join you, Michael. Thank you very much. And um, so I wanted to have you on because we've been talking about the first you know, two weeks here of the, of the uh, Biden presidency. And he had cited... FDR, and has seems to come out of the gate trying to aspire to uh, FDR and the and the tone and the model that he set in his first 100 days. Now, granted, 100 days back in 1933 is different than 100 days in uh, 2021, and we have major crises that are facing us uh, right now. I mean, we in just within the first couple of weeks of January, we had an insurrection, we had an impeachment, and of course, we have a devastating pandemic that is killing three to four thousand people a week. So Biden, Biden knows what's in front of him here, and I just thought you'd be the perfect person to have on to to discuss the lessons learned from Franklin Roosevelt, and and I'm sure these lessons obviously go beyond a hundred days. It's kind of a random number 
anyways, but but I think that for all the, uh, especially the people that, that are happy about the change in administration and are supportive and are sitting at home on pins and needles right now, people listening to this, not knowing what they can do to be supportive, to help out the new president, because already the wall is being built, uh, it seems, to stop to stop uh, any progress from taking place. So let me just, I'll just begin by, throw, let me just throw out to you, as you've witnessed these first two weeks, what do you think? How's it going? The thing that struck me most was watching President Biden's inaugural address and feeling a sense of relief at the very normalness of it. Because for the last four years, watching the president, President Trump, behave the way he did made me think that, honestly, as somebody who studied the presidency for a long time, it made me think that everything that I thought I knew about the presidency, I just forget it was not worth anything anymore. But then Biden stepped to the podium and gave his inaugural address, which I thought was fine. But the greatest thing about it was it was an ordinary political speech. It wasn't a rant. It wasn't, it didn't treat this August event like a political rally. And I thought, ah, okay. So we're back to a president acting presidential. So that was my first reaction. The second reaction is that you mentioned potential parallels between the beginning of the Biden presidency and the beginning of the Franklin Roosevelt presidency. And I think there's one aspect in which there is a very close similarity, at least a potential similarity. And that is that in 1932, when voters turned out Herbert Hoover and elected Franklin Roosevelt, there was clearly a longing for leadership in Washington and for a president who seemed to care what, about what the American people were going through. And I see the same thing in the rejection of Donald Trump. Now, Herbert Hoover wasn't a bad man, and he wasn't a, he would have been a fine president if the country hadn't gotten into the crisis that it became in, but he was not a good crisis president. And he was one who tended to think that people brought on their own misfortune or their own fortune in his case. Mm. And he didn't understand that basically bad things can happen to people through no fault of their own. And so when Franklin Roosevelt became president, the first thing that he did, the, the principal chore that he had was to make people in America believe there was someone in Washington who cared about them, who was listening to them, who was going to work on their behalf. And there was a sense with Franklin Roosevelt, in in this case, it didn't come with the inaugural address. It came with his first fireside chat, his first radio address to the American people, where he explained what the government had been doing during the first part of this emergency session of Congress that he had called, the session that would come to be called 100 Days, but it worked on an emergency banking bill. The banks had been closed. And now they're going to reopen. The economy had been frozen. And he explained what he and Congress had done, how the banking system had been reformed. And then he put it to the American people. He said, all the stuff that we've done here in Washington won't be worth anything without the support of you, the American people. And Americans responded previously when lines had grown outside of banks. It was for people desperate to get their money out of the banks. The next morning after Roosevelt's first fireside chat, when he encouraged people to, to vote with their savings, they the lines formed again, but it was put the money in the account. So wow. to wow. the extent that President Biden can tap into this felt need on the part, certainly, of the 80 plus million people who voted for him, a need for leadership 
in Congress. We face a crisis. It's not exactly the same crisis. There's an economic element to it, but we have this pandemic. And it's really clear. I think it's clear to even many of the people who voted for Donald Trump that the president had abdicated any leadership role in dealing with the pandemic. And so between the pandemic and the economic crisis we're in, I think there is a real possibility that Joe Biden can get people to, to respond and that he can say, you know, we're all in this together and let's see what we can do to get out of it. So I think there is that parallel and that possibility. Did Roosevelt have, though, in front of him, facing him down, uh, the other party, the Republican Party in Congress, uh, threatening to block, you know, anything and and a filibuster that required 60 votes to to even forget about the filibuster, to just even introduce a bill, you don't introduce it unless you got 60 votes. Because if I remember when I was a kid, 51 votes, that's a majority, that wins, yes. that passes the bill. So did did how did Roosevelt deal with the Republicans? And in, 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 in the interest of full disclosure, people who listen to Rumble uh, know this story. I am the fourth cousin of Herbert Hoover. Um, I went on Henry Louis Gates' uh, PBS Finding Your Roots show Mm -hmm. and that was the the big reveal was (laughs) (laughs) that he said you're you're a cousin of one of the 45 presidents and um i'm like you know i'm hoping kennedy something like that (laughs) um and it turned out to be herbert hoover uh so uh thank you for your kind words and not putting all the blame on him he just he was wired he was wired differently uh than roosevelt and uh and so in comes roosevelt hoover republicans are still there um, I don't know what the ratio was in Congress at that time, but just give us a sense of what what opposition um, he was facing. Because as people read your book, they they will discover that that the real opposition opposition came from uh, not people who were elected to political office by the people of the United States, but by the people who controlled uh, American corporations, Wall Street, and our wealth. Right. So in terms of the makeup of Congress. The election of 1832 confirmed democratic control of both houses of 1932, right? 1932. Yes. Sorry. And the the stock market crash in 1929. And so the first wave of removals of Republicans, which had been the normal majority party since almost the Civil War, the first wave of removals came in the, the midterm elections of 1930. So that removed some of the Republicans. The, because the Depression deepened after that in 1932, it didn't sweep all the Republicans out, but it put enough Democrats in Congress that Roosevelt had strong majorities in both houses. And so that was, that was huge. In fact, that's what made the 100 days the 100 days. Roosevelt called a special emergency session of Congress to deal specifically with the banking crisis. And so members of administration got together and they consulted with leaders of Congress and they created this uh, emergency banking act. And it sailed through Congress. In fact, the votes on it were taken before people had had a chance to read it. They were just thinking, okay, we need to get something done. And Roosevelt was so pleased with the fact that basically he had a Congress that would rubber stamp whatever he sent, that he kept them around. And so he sent up one major piece of legislation after another until he sent up 15 pieces of legislation. Every one had been approved. And then he finally ran out of things to do. And it happened to be 100 days after he'd called the, the session into being. 
And so that's why in American politics, there is this 100 days. Roosevelt certainly wasn't thinking of 100 days. He was thinking of maybe eight or 10 days. But things were going so right. well, I just, okay, keep them around. Let's keep doing this. And they, did, they didn't take a break because back then, Congress and the new president didn't start till March. So that means if they were there for 100 days, they were there through Easter, uh, the Jewish holidays, um, Memorial Day weekend, which yeah. they called Decoration Day back then. So, I mean, did they really just stay there and do, uh, you know? They did. And before the days of common air travel, you couldn't fly home on the weekends. And so, yeah, Roosevelt just kept them around. Now, the, the one thing that was sort of pushing up against the end was the fact that it was a hot summer. I mean, it was the Washington summer coming. Right. And so that would drive people away from Washington in the years before common air conditioning. But by then, Roosevelt had this enormous list of accomplishments, um, something like no other president before or after has done. And I should add something that Joe Biden's not going to be able to do. He's not going to be able to do that. I should, and you mentioned something about sort of who controlled sort of the rest of America in those days. Well, in terms of the media, Roosevelt was opposed by a majority of the newspaper editors in the country. And newspaper was where most people got their information. This was, of course, before television. And radio, radio was not the medium it would become. It became the medium it did become in part because Roosevelt used it as a way of circumventing the filters of Republican conservative editors, because he could take his message directly to the people. In those days, nearly, I would say nearly every household, but very many households had a radio receiver and they would listen to it. And Roosevelt scheduled the fireside chats for Sunday evenings when people would be home and they would listen and he could speak to them. And radio, like podcasts, a wonderful medium because you're not distracted by the, the video and you can imagine, even if you know in your head that the president of the United States is speaking to 70 million people, you can imagine that he's speaking to you, you know, all by yourself. Right. And so there was this emotional connection that was formed between Roosevelt and the American people, especially in this time of crisis. And uh, when I wrote the book and I was talking to various audiences after the book, um, I would speak to some audiences and there were people in the audience who were old enough to remember hearing the fireside chats. And I remember addressing one audience and saying that, yeah, and, and, and when people listen to Roosevelt on Sunday evenings, in many cases, they were already you know, tucked in bed and it was like you know, their favorite uncle or their father, you know, tucking them in and saying, everything's going to be okay. You know, it's like the voice of you know, somebody you knew like that. <laughs> and this a charming elderly woman came up to me afterwards and said, now, when, when I heard Roosevelt's voice, it was not the voice of my uncle or my father I heard. It was the voice of God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I would think, but because of the suffering that had already taken place for uh, four years or so, the need for the voice of God was probably pretty great at that point. And I know that just from my parents telling me what it was like yeah. uh, back then. So. All right, so he had he had that advantage, but we left off with <laughs> something. The audience is still in shock because you said Biden will not accomplish what Roosevelt accomplished in his first 100 days, and I think you know spirits that were so low pre-inauguration, and and they've been on uh, tender hooks um, during these uh, the insurrection, and of course with COVID. So people, um, you know, they're used to hearing only positive news from me. And, and, and optimism, of course, I'm being facetious, but um, th th you that that was kind of a 
you threw that out there and I'm um, let people know what you mean by that. And if, the, uh, if you were saying that, that basically there's little hope of getting a whole lot done and we, we all better bring our expectations down. Well, I will just say that in 1932, 1933, but if you don't have to say that, don't. (laughs) Yeah. No. In 1933, when Roosevelt became president, the American capitalist system was on life support and it was really unclear whether it would survive and whether if it didn't survive, it would take down the country with it. And so there was an appetite. There was a willingness to see major changes in the relationship between government and the private sector. It's, it was part of the struggle that had gone back to the late 19th century, and that is, can American democracy deal with American capitalism? And it's part of a struggle that antedated even that. In the private sector, there's big business, there's corporations, there's capitalism. In the, the public sector, there's democracy. And certainly beginning with the progressive era and the beginning of the 20th century, this, this battle was joined. Can government bulk up to deal with big business. It was big business. It gotten really big during the late 19th century. And the progressive era was, among other things, about that, that question. And the New Deal was an extension of that. And so the question is, what is the role of government at this moment of crisis of capitalism? And so there was, for example, I mean, Roosevelt was often labeled a socialist by his political enemies and opponents, but right. he was not. He was nowhere near a socialist. If he had been a socialist, he could very easily, almost with a snap of his fingers, nationalized the banking system because this was the first part of that first wave of the New Deal of the 100 Days. And Roosevelt could say that the banking system has failed us. And he could have just said, okay, we're going to nationalize the banks. All banks are going to become branches of the United States government. But he didn't. Roosevelt was nowhere near a socialist. What Roosevelt was was the best friend American capitalism ever had. Now, you couldn't get the capitalists to admit that, but there was that moment when Roosevelt could basically have said, okay, we're going to take this country in the direction of socialism, but he didn't. All he wanted was a fair shake for the ordinary people of America. He wanted some concern for those people who had played by the rules, who had not speculated in the stock market as so many did during the 1920s, who had put their money very quietly in savings accounts only to see the banks collapsed and then left with nothing. Some concern had to be given to those people. And when I said that Joe Biden's not going to accomplish what Roosevelt did, well, nobody, no other president ever accomplished what Roosevelt did, in part because there was a perceived systemic crisis that was greater than than the crisis state. We have a, a pandemic. Yes, that's true. And no doubt about it. It's a real crisis. But there isn't, there isn't a consensus behind the view that the American system, it's Amer- the American political economy is fundamentally flawed and needs to be fundamentally reorganized. That's simply not there. The other thing, and you alluded to this, is that a minority in the Senate can block legislation far more easily than minorities in the Senate could before. The filibuster used to have to be a real filibuster, where you actually had to stand there and talk for hours and hours and hours. Now, filibuster, just the idea can block legislation. And this isn't the way the Senate was designed. This isn't the way the Senate worked in the 1930s. So it allowed Roosevelt a lot more leeway than any president today would have, certainly with a razor-thin majority that the Democrats have in the Senate now. 
If you can hang on just a second, Bill, uh, here, because I need to give a shout out to one of our underwriters uh, for today. And that is uh, MTV Documentary Films is here with us sponsoring and supporting my voice uh, on this podcast. And I want to thank them for doing that. MTV Documentary Films has two award-winning films out right now. One is called 76 Days, and the other is A Life Too Short. 76 Days, which I have actually playing at my virtual uh, cinema in Michigan uh, right now, it takes an unprecedented look at the world's first COVID-19 lockdown filmed on the ground, uh, sometimes surreptitiously, in Wuhan, China, as it happened by a group of Chinese filmmakers. Uh, it's, it's a brave piece of filmmaking. It documents the start of uh, the biggest health crisis that we've seen in modern history, and it starts from day one. They were, they were right there. They picked up their cameras, no matter the size of the camera or whatever, and we have this incredible view, thanks to this documentary, 76 Days, as to what and how this began powerful and and don't not watch it because it's just more COVID-19. It was so hopeful for me because I saw how they had it and then what they decided to do to get rid of it. And and it's it's a lesson for all of us. It has humanity to it. It has humor. It's amazing and proof that that you, some of you could be making your documentaries on your cameras. This is this is just 76 days. It won the audience award at the AFI Fest, the American Film Institute Festival, big festival. It was directed by Ha Wu, Wei Shi Chen, and someone who was too afraid to put their name on it. It's just listed in the credits as anonymous, but wonderful. And congratulations to those three filmmakers for this incredible film. The other one that MTV Documentaries has out right now is called A Life Too Short, and it remembers the life and death of Kandil Baloch, who is considered Pakistan's first social media star. It tells the story of how Kandil empowered women, challenged tradition, and then, sadly, was forced to pay the price. Her bravery brought her fame, but it also, more importantly, changed Pakistani law forever. A Life Too Short. It's produced by Sharmin Obeid Shinoy, who is the Academy Award-winning director of A Girl in the River, and it was directed by Safia Usmani. It was also chosen as an official selection at Doc NYC this year. So, my friends, these two films, 76 Days, is now playing at 76daysfilm.com. And I'll have that listed here on my podcast page so you can link to it. And A Life Too Short is available now on Pluto TV. Go to Pluto TV and you can watch A Life Too Short. I'll have links, as I said, for both of these films right here in the description page of this podcast episode. And I thank MTV Documentary Films and Sheila Evans there for supporting this podcast, supporting my voice, and of course, supporting the work of great documentary filmmakers over the years. Okay, now back to back to you. <laughs> thank you, Bill, for letting me do that. Isn't it incumbent upon Biden and the Democrats, certainly in the Senate, uh, to get go back to the old idea of the filibuster the way it used to be where a senator did have to stand on that floor and talk uh for hours upon hours until he collapsed he or she of course there weren't many she's back then but um wasn't that the way it was supposed to go and then when they collapsed get a stretcher haul them out of there and now let's get on with voting on the bill um or you could have 60 senators say uh look you've talked long enough uh it's time for us to vote 
the, the Biden, you're right. Biden isn't going to get much done if the minority party, the party that the majority of the American people did not want running the country in any way, shape, or form, whether it was the White House, the House, the Senate, the American people have spoken. Yes, the majority is is not overwhelming, but it's a majority, and majority rules. And what I mean, I just what what are your thoughts about this? Because that that very thing you just said. Because Roosevelt didn't have that in, uh, uh, um, in front of him to deal with. Uh, isn't this something that has to be dealt with before Biden's going to be able to get much of what needs to happen done? Well, the answer is probably yes. Although Joe Biden, having spent a large part of his career in the Senate, will be sensitive to the argument that what goes around comes around. And if the Democrats change the rules, then those new rules will be used against them the next time around. Now, one can make the argument, oh, come on, the Republicans have simply been better at playing political hardball than the Democrats for years. So why not the Democrats catch on and, and you know, throw the, the high hard stuff back? And there's something to that argument. But we live at a time when getting anything bipartisan through Congress is I'm not going to say, yeah, it's nearly impossible. I might as well say it. And this because the political parties have so sifted out ideologically that there's no overlap between the most liberal Republicans and the most conservative Democrats. There was in Roosevelt's day. And so Roosevelt's own party, the Democrats, contained some of the most conservative people in the country, white Southerners, who... You know, the only reason they were Democrats was they had bad memories of the Civil War and Reconstruction. So they were legacy Democrats. It's not because they believed the same things that Northeastern urban Democrats did in the 1930s. It's just they didn't like the Republicans from ages past. But what that meant was that on signature issues, for example, Social Security, which was the centerpiece of the New Deal on social legislation, Roosevelt could expect to get and did get. Republican votes as well as Democratic votes. Now, a lot of this had to do, as I say, with the fact that there was a philosophical overlap between the two parties. And some of it was a result, too, of the fact that the, the media did not exacerbate partisan divisions to the extent that they do today. It is true that in pretty much every city, you could find a Republican newspaper and you could find a Democratic newspaper. But there weren't just separate news universes the way there are today. And there was nothing like Facebook. There's nothing like Instagram and Twitter, where you just have this own world that is created before you and you don't have to, to set foot in or put an ear or an eye to anything that contradicts the stuff you believe. The last thing is that in the last 30 years, the, the art, art uh, the black art of gerrymandering has been perfected, if that's the right word. So that nearly yeah. every seat in the House of Representatives is safe for one party or the other, which means that the only elections that count are the primary elections. So the United States, at least in elections to Congress, has become like the Jim Crow South in the sense that in the days of Jim Crow in the South, the only elections that matter were the Democratic primaries. Whoever won that Democratic primary would win the election. Now it works in both parties throughout the whole country. And so there's no incentive. In fact, there are all sorts of negative incentives against any Republican doing anything to cooperate with a Democrat, or for that matter, vice versa. So 
This is why, for example, Barack Obama could not get a single Republican vote for a measure, the Affordable Care Act, that a lot of Republicans would have voted for on its own merits. A lot of Republicans in Massachusetts had voted for. But the partisanship had become so deep and entrenched that it was essentially political suicide for any Republican to sign on to anything that had Barack Obama's name on it. And I suspect some of that's going to obtain with a President Biden. Yeah, there's a there's a funny passage in uh, Barack Obama's uh, book that just came out where um, he has Chuck Grassley, the Republican senator, uh, over to the White House trying to convince him to go along with the Affordable Care Act. And so he just said to him, tell me what you don't like about it. Just I'm going to make a list. So he gives him he gives Obama five things that he'd like to see changed. This is after it's already been changed many times, many compromises by the Democrats. And and so Obama says to him, so these five things you don't like, if I fix them, if I do do it your way, that means I've got your vote. Uh, he yeah. says grassly, <laughs> like this long, awkward pause. And then he, he kind of hangs his head and grassly does and says, uh, uh, no, I am, can't vote for this. No matter yeah. how many changes you make. <laughs> wow. That's intense. Um, it that's is. Where, that's that's where, the world we still live in, unfortunately. Okay. So it's not 1933. It's not Franklin Roosevelt. Um, but there has to be a path. There has to be a path. Um, and Biden, I mean, I'm already, you know, when Obama took office one week into his administration, he had the, um, uh, his stimulus bill, the, I think it was the infrastructure mm -hmm. uh, already, already introduced in, in Congress. Biden hasn't done that yet. Now it's two weeks. And I'm thinking, okay, I know you, you came in strong. Oh, my God, he had all those great uh, executive orders, undoing all the damage that was done for the last four years, and then all the positive, good stuff, big big things, little things, Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill again. you know. But um, I have to tell you, as you and I are speaking here today, I'm now, I'm now starting to get a little nervous, a little worried. That and I'm and I'm hoping Biden doesn't back down. He doesn't seem to be, you know. The Republicans came over and tried to get him to go along with their plan of cutting his plan in by two thirds, uh, and he came out and said, "No, we can't do that." But um, there has to be a method here to this madness. There has to be a path forward, and and Franklin Roosevelt has to be speaking to us from the grave at some point here. And, and and mentoring and giving some some direction from what you know from all your research from you've had a, you know you've had a good chunk of your life to think about this and I know you've been thinking about it during this time um, and you know don't tell me there isn't any hope no I'm not going to tell you there isn't any hope but I tell you first of all that I'm not not at all privy to what's going on inside the the Biden White House but here's what I hope is going on. I hope that President Biden, former Senator Biden, has decided that the, the most likely way forward is to get agreements ahead of time. Speak with senators, speak with people on the Republican side, and find out you know, what they can actually go along with. Instead of just slapping it down on the table, here it is, you know, vote for it against it.
because I think he realizes that if he does that, the Republicans will have to vote against it and it'll be dead. And he might have an issue to campaign on in 2022, but I don't think that's what he's interested in. I think he's interested in actually getting a bill through. Now, I think if Franklin Roosevelt were here, he would say, Joe, you can't do it the way I did it. I had a different situation than you have. Franklin Roosevelt had one of the keenest political minds of the 20th century. And he knew when he had the votes and when he didn't, he knew what he had to do. He knew when to attack the other side and when not to. And he knew, for example, that many members of his own party, those conservative Southerners that I was talking about, were really dubious of the New Deal. They were not liberals. They didn't, didn't want to see a bigger government, but they, but they would go along for a while. Uh, but they had to be coaxed and you know, they had to be you know, handled. And Roosevelt would do that. So I think that it, it would be a mistake for Joe Biden to try to channel the Franklin Roosevelt that we know from 1933, because the circumstances are so different. And there's something else, and that is this pandemic is really like nothing the country has ever been through in the sense of what the government can do or cannot do about it. Yeah, there was an influenza epidemic in 1918 and 1919, but that was no one had any dream that there would be a vaccine. And so he just, okay. I mean, there were, there was social distancing, things got closed down, but people weren't surprised that 600,000 Americans died and that 50 million people around the world died. That was just the way the world was in those days. I think that President Biden can, by setting an example and by appealing to the common interest of Americans, both parties, get greater action, great, get a sense of co cooperation on how to deal with the pandemic. If he can show executive leadership in getting vaccines out to the different states, then I think that will give him a credibility that he perhaps can extrapolate to other areas. I think that there's going to be um, a relief bill. There, there's going to be something and there's some arguing at the moment. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I, I would be very surprised if nothing comes out of this. I mean, some, something will come out of this. What, hap what happens beyond that, that remains to be seen. Uh, Joe Biden is going to have his own difficulties within his party, the way Franklin Roosevelt did. And I should point out that during the 100 days, Roosevelt was riding so high, those Southern conservatives, basically, they just shut up and went along. But at first opportunity, when Roosevelt stumbled, then they began to defect. So the New Deal was essentially done in terms of any new legislation by the end of Roosevelt's first term. Now, you know, that's four years, but still, Roosevelt was president for 12 years. So the New Deal didn't continue as this creative force in American politics the whole way by any means. So President Biden's going to have to deal with the fact that the left wing of his party is going to make the claim, we got you elected. You know, we want to see more aggressive action on these items that are important to us. And Democratic centrists are going to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The reason you got the Democratic nomination was precisely that you weren't Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. You know, you were nominated by the moderate wing of the party. So he's going to have to decide where to come down on that. 
And he's going to have to decide where to come down on that, both symbolically and substantively. And so um, we'll see how he manages to shift back and forth between symbolic measures, Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill and substantive measures, you know, things that actually take money out of one set of people's pockets and delivers it somewhere else. But he isn't, he isn't doing what Obama did. He's not in the kumbaya spirit here. He, has, he hasn't been rude or cruel, but he has been pretty forceful about saying, you know, look, we need this relief bill and that's that. I mean, earlier this week, he sent Kamala Harris to West Virginia to essentially punk on a Democratic senator who wasn't going along with a relief bill, uh, Joe Manchin, the senator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a bold, bold move. You know? I, yeah, it was a bold move. Now, it remains to be seen whether it works or not. It may because not work. The, yeah. I mean, and so I have a hunch that Joe Biden was paying close attention while he was vice president. And he took from his experience in the Obama administration what might work and what might not work. And I think he doesn't want to be in a position where a signature piece of legislation, I don't know exactly what it would be, turns out to be like the Affordable Care Act, where it passes with not a single vote from the other party and spends the next 10 years fighting tooth and nail for its life. Right. Even though the Democrats gave in on practically every issue of every change that the Republicans wanted. It was, as you said, a, a Republican idea. It, it was Mitt Romney's yeah. Yeah. Massachusetts uh, uh, public health plan. And yet they still, they, no matter how much they gave in, they wasted all that time. And then boom, the Republicans, you know, for the most part, virtually sat it out. Yeah. Now there's another thing that's going to emerge maybe in the next few weeks, maybe it'll take, months or a couple of years to figure out. And that is, to what extent the Democrats won this election and to what extent the Donald Trump Republicans lost it? I, I can't prove this, but I have a hunch that Donald Trump was a liability to the Republicans both in 2016 and in 2020. I've long thought that if Jeb Bush somehow or other could have gotten the Republican nomination in 2016, he would have won. He probably would have won the popular vote and the electoral vote. I think there were a lot of Republican voters who simply held their noses and voted for Donald Trump, but because they were Republican, they voted Republican. I think the huge turnout in the 2020 election was primarily a result of the, the emotions that Donald Trump stirred. And so if it is the case that because of the Electoral College, because of the overrepresentation in the Senate of rural and small states, if the Republicans have basically um, an existing edge in national politics in this country, then at some level, uh, the Republicans, excuse me, the Democrats might very well wish that Donald Trump hangs around so that they can run against him in 2022 and in 2024. Because I just don't see that huge turnout for the Democratic ticket in 2020 if it had been Jeb Bush, let's say, on the mm -hmm. ticket. It's also possible Trump could have won in 2020 had there been no COVID. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, definitely. Had, or had he seized the reins of it. And, and done what any autocrat would have done, which is immediately take charge 
of the pandemic, shut things down, tell people what to do, make it illegal to walk around without him. That's what an autocrat does. If you don't have a mask on, you know, you're going to jail. Uh, He doesn't do any of the things that would have helped reduce the number of deaths from the coronavirus. It's it's, it's something, I don't know, that I I will think about for years because um, he... The, the way that he could have won um, is, for me, just personally, I'm speaking for myself, just kind of frightening because he won in, in 2016 with three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And that was a total victory of his of 77,000 votes over Hillary. 77,000 right. votes. Put those three states together. Biden won by three states, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania. Put his victory together, it's about 40,000. Yeah. Biden only won by 40,000 with three states. Trump won with 77,000 with three states. So it, it's as, precari- as precarious uh, as it seems to a lot of people. I think it's even, as you pointed out, even possibly more so. And, and, that, um, and I know that's in the back of Biden's mind. But as he makes his decision, he knows that the only way we're going to get out of this pandemic is they, if they make hundreds of millions of new doses ASAP, that the government is in charge of this, watching the CDC director last week say that, the new one, mm-hmm. saying that she could not tell the American public how many doses we have. Simply, right. the number doesn't exist anywhere in any file. Unbelievable. So this is what he's up against here. If he doesn't come in and take the reins of this and, and get in charge of it and push these things forward, I just, I, you know, well, forget about reelection. I'm just thinking about the people I don't want to die. Right. Yeah. I, I just, what are the people that are listening to this right now, what is it that they can do? And I know, again, it's not 1933, but it was an amazing story. I didn't know that the, he asked people to go back to the bank the next day and line up, not, not to get money out, but to put money in. That's a risky thing to do when the banks have been shut down, the banks have lost your money, and now you're telling you, the president, are telling them to go put, put whatever they've been able to save, their meager savings, back into the bank yeah. after four years of suffering. Wow. Talk about trust. Yeah. And the thing is that the banking system then, as today, is built on trust. And if people trust the banks, then the banks do fine. If people don't trust the banks, the banks collapse. And the banking crisis, which had been building for three years since the stock market crash of 1929, the banking crisis was solved within just a week as it became clear that people's confidence in the banks had been restored by virtue of the actions that Roosevelt and Congress had taken. And once the money started coming back in, then the banking crisis was over. Now, the Great Depression was still on. That was a much bigger deal. But the banking crisis itself had, had ended. So what can people do? Yeah, people today. Uh, a, yeah, so to us right on, now. on a very simple and partly symbolic level, what people can do is, well, here, instead of channeling Franklin Roosevelt, I sort of channel John Kennedy. And in his inaugural address, he said famously, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And for people, for example, who get the vaccine, you're fortunate enough to get the vaccine, still abide by the social distancing, masking up rules, just as an expression of solidarity for other people to model good behavior instead of emphasizing rights, consider responsibilities. So we have a right to do lots of things, 
but it's not always the prudent thing. It's not always the, the wise thing to do. And just because I suppose somebody might have a right that they could imagine to walk around without a mask or to go into a store without a mask, I mean, maybe there is such a constitutional right, but it's not a good thing to do. It's not good for the individual. It's not good for the country as a whole. And so if this attitude that we can solve this problem if we all work together. And it doesn't have to be a partisan thing. And I think the fact that Trump is now out of office makes it possible to look at this pandemic situation as very much less a partisan thing. And it didn't have to be from the beginning, but Trump made it that way. Well, he's gone. And I don't see that there's a whole lot of desire on the part of remaining Republicans to make it once again a partisan issue. Maybe in the states and there are communities where People get in fights over wearing masks. But, but if there is an example at the top, if the president, the vice president, you know, members of the, the Biden administration, Democrats in Congress, if they model good behavior, then perhaps it catches on. And one of the great things about cooperation is if you can cooperate in one area, then you discover that that person that you thought was your enemy is not really your enemy. And then you can cooperate on something else. Now, um, so that's, that's the positive outlook. The negative outlook is that we, we've gotten a situation where political parties, well, as political parties do, they tend to put their own party interests ahead of the interests of the country. And on a number of issues, it seems pretty clear to me that parties and the Democrats are at fault in this, uh, like the Republicans, but on certain issues, it would seem they would rather have the problem than the solution. Because a lot of problems facing the country today on immigration, for example, Ronald Reagan was able to get an immigration bill. And because Reagan, first of all, was a compromiser himself, he, he always talked a 100% conservative game, but he was willing to accept 75 or 80%. And, and of course, it was a time when there were still conservative Democrats around. There aren't any Dem conservative Democrats anymore. There aren't any liberal Republicans. Reagan lived in the 1980s, he was president at the time when it was, there still was that philosophical overlap between the two parties. But nonetheless, it wouldn't be impossible to get an agreement on an immigration bill, except that there are elements in both parties that would rather have the issue than a solution. And when you're faced with that, it's really hard to get the kind of buy-in that you need, the, the willingness to compromise. Yeah, I think... Um... Well, one thing's clear from this discussion. One thing that Roosevelt had that Biden doesn't have uh, is a, a solid majority in Congress. And um, and so I guess one thing that people need to think about listening to this is 2022. And don't wait till 2022 to think about 2022. We need to be thinking about this right now of how can we um, remove more Republicans I mean, one third of the Senate seats will be up in 2022 for re-election. And um, you don't start there, shore up the ones, don't lose any Democratic seats in the House in 2022 and, and, and go back and pick up a few more. I mean, that would help Biden then in the second half of his, of his first term. No question about it. And an election like that will be something of a referendum on the performance of the Biden administration. Because it's one thing to say, we don't like what Trump has done. Let's get the Republicans out. But the next election in 2022 
will be, okay, the Democrats have had charge. They've had both houses of Congress and they've had the White House. So what have they gotten done? And I hope that the Democratic animus toward Trump can be converted into a positive endorsement of the Biden administration. Because if the Democrats can hold Congress, both houses, if they can increase their majorities, then that would really send a message to the country that, okay, the Democrats, they're the party that gets something done. But of course, the Democrats are going to have to turn out in the kind of numbers they turned out in 2020. Absolutely. And that's, that's tough yeah. to do when yeah. there's not a, a presidential candidate at the top of the ticket. Right. And especially one like Trump. Right. Yeah. Before we close, I just want to, the night of the, after the inauguration, his first day in office, uh, they let some cameras in to, they had already remodeled the, the Oval Office, disinfected it, everything uh, during the inauguration, during the afternoon. And that night, they let cameras in to see what Joe Biden had done to the Oval Office. And um, and it was pretty impressive, I have to say. He had, sitting behind him at his desk, was a bust of Cesar Chavez, mm -hmm. uh, the Latino union organizer and hero. Um other busts, uh, uh, pieces of sculpture in the Oval Office included Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. It's quite a statement. Um, this, this is who you want to you want to share your office with. But what was most notable to me, and because you have written uh, big biographies on both Franklin Roosevelt and Andrew Jackson. If you remember, I'm sure you do, um, the big painting that Trump had for those four years on the wall to his left as he sat at the desk was of Andrew Jackson. Uh, let's just say there's still a lot of ill will toward Andrew Jackson um, from many people, start, starting with Native Americans and working our way upward. Uh, all people, it... Um, um, he is not regarded well by many people historically. And I think that's part of why Trump loved the idea of... Of course. That's exactly why he went up. The, the, yeah. Yes, the Jackson painting. Down came the painting on January 20th, and up went a painting of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I saw that, and I thought, okay, that's more than a statement. You took down Jackson and replaced him with Roosevelt. You must have seen the same thing. Yeah. And now it's interesting historically because Andrew Jackson, believe it or not, was the model for Franklin Roosevelt of how you should be a president. Andrew Jackson was one of the found, one of the two founding fathers of the Democratic Party. The other was Thomas Jefferson. And for years, the, the Democrats had their Jefferson Jackson Day dinners. But Trump's Placing Jackson up on the wall of the Oval Office, to me, said, it said nothing about parallels between Jackson and Trump. Jackson was far more talented than Trump. Jackson was far more upright than Trump. Jackson respected women, all this other stuff that Trump didn't. But it did draw uh, a true enough parallel between the people who voted for Trump and the people who voted for Jackson. And in both cases, these were... I'll call them populists. These were people who believed that the entrenched powers in Washington were screwing them over. 
And they wanted to send a message that get those people out and put our guy in. And Trump was saying that, I mean, Trump was trying to, to draw this connection. And Andrew Jackson would have been appalled that Donald Trump would think he was anything like that. But it was also, of course, telling Trump's base that, you know, forget this multicultural stuff. We're going to go back to the time when white man ran this country. And so the, the various busts that you mentioned in the Biden Oval Office and Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was a Democrat in good standing, um, but it's, um, in fact, the Democratic Party today is a very different party than the Democratic Party of Franklin Roosevelt. But one thing that was clear to everybody about Franklin Roosevelt was that he believed that this Democratic Party was and needed to be the party of ordinary people of America. And if Joe Biden can convince ordinary Americans that that remains the case, then he will have a chance at some of the success that Franklin Roosevelt had. You know, and uh, so you know, we'll, we'll see. That's going to require the, um, the media and, and others to, when they talk about ordinary Americans, when they talk about working class Americans, that in 2021, that means something different than what it meant in 1933. The majority of the working class these days is female. Yeah. Not guys with lunch buckets. Right. The, major the majority of the working class these days are people of color. Um, so, and they're young. That's probably always been the case. They're younger rather than older because right. they're starting out in life. But it would seem to me that if Biden behaves as the president of the everyday American and understands that every day means women, people of color, young people, and, and white working class people who have had their, their face shoved right in, into, the, into the grindstone, right into the, the, the struggle of, of these last 30 years, and the way I sort of look at it is that we had this era that went from Roosevelt to Reagan, and Reagan put a stop to that, and also also pretending you know to be a populist to be there for the average American, um, but turning their hatred toward the government, like the government was no longer of by and for the people, but was a bad thing. That's what Reagan ran on. We've lived with that now from Reagan through Trump. That's the second phase. I sound like I'm a historian. I don't mm -hmm. even know half right. the time what I'm talking about. But, no, you're right on. But exactly. I, I've, lived, I've yeah. lived it. And, um, and, and now it seems with Trump gone, possibly that era has ended and we're in a new era and maybe things can change. And maybe, and I've, and I've spoken on this podcast directly to Trump voters, to red state people and said, look, folks, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to like me. Don't change your party affiliation to Democratic. Uh, but but here's, I'm just telling you that that wouldn't you rather double your wage? If you're making $7.25 an hour, Biden and the Democrats in Congress are going to make that $15 an hour. Tell me what part of that you don't like. Right. Tell me yeah. what part, if, if, if Biden is going to make sure that your kid, that you've not been able to save any money for, for college, is going to be able to go to college tuition free. Tell me how much that makes you sick that your kid is going to be able to go to college for free. I mean, seriously, I think if Biden can 
can present it in this way. I use this example on my apologies to the Piggly Wiggly people because I know eventually I'm going to be sued uh, by them. But I, I, I just say to the, to the Trump voter who's a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly, and he's there at the cash register, and the woman next to him makes a dollar less an hour. She's a woman. They only can get away with paying her less. Now, that woman's husband voted for Trump. And if I were to say to him, do you know your wife? Do you know that guy working next to her? It's making a dollar more an hour than your wife. You guys would have 40 more dollars a week coming in under Biden's plan where women are paid the same as men. Tell me how much you would hate having 40 more dollars a week. See, I think once, I think good people who you know, don't like the Democrats because of guns, because of abortion, because of, well, mainly, sadly, because of race, because uh, they haven't worked that out yet. It's going to have to get worked out because white people are going to be the minority in the 2040s. So I, I encourage my fellow white guys, let's get over the anger, folks, and, uh, and get with the program because you can't stop the demographic. But don't you, I mean, Bill, don't you think that, that, there is a way to talk to them and to get not all of them, obviously, not even the majority of them, but just a small percentage of them to say, you know, damn it, that's right. I should be making more money. My wife should be paid the same as the guy next to her. And, and, and I want my kid in that college. Oh, by the way, if I get really sick, I don't want to lose my house because of a hospital bill. Can't we, can't we bring them, not the, not the ones that have gone crazy, QAnon, the ones who are lost, God bless their souls, they're gone. But that's not the majority of them, is it? Isn't there a way to somehow to somehow fix this? Can Biden, if we are entering a new era, can can Biden possibly pull this off? I think Joe Biden is peculiarly positioned to do that kind of thing in the following way. Joe Biden, you know, been in politics a long time, but he's always been this ordinary guy. And he rides the train and he talks with everybody. And if Joe Biden can make a start on making the Democratic Party once again, the party of working class Americans, the way it was in Franklin Roosevelt's day, the way it was until the 1980s, then there is a great opportunity on all those issues that you just talked about. And related to what you were saying about the eras in recent American history, yeah, I think you've, you've hit it right on the head. And Ronald Reagan, in his first inaugural address, said the government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem itself. And that, that marked a turn from the liberalism of Franklin Roosevelt and up to, to Reagan. But Reagan said it's, the pro he said it's the problem. And he said, in this circumstance, it's the problem. But from Reagan until now, on the Republican side, that problem became the, the enemy. So government is not simply the problem. Government is the enemy. And that's the position that Republicans have staked out. And what Franklin Roosevelt demonstrated in the 1930s was that government is not the enemy. Government is not government doesn't necessarily have the answers to everything, but at least people in government, starting with me, are on your side. And this is just what you're talking about. If President Biden can make a start on making ordinary Americans. And as you aptly pointed out, the working class today doesn't look like the working class that sat down in the auto plants in the 1930s. It's a much more diverse, a much more varied working class. But still, these are people who live from paycheck to paycheck. And if, if President Biden can demonstrate that the Republican Party has their interests at heart, now it's, it's going to be a, a tough pull 
Because certainly in the minds of many of those Republicans, people that you've identified who voted for Donald Trump, the, Rep the Democratic Party is the party of special interests, the party of racial groups, it's the party that doesn't care about me. But if the Democrats, if Joe Biden can demonstrate, yeah, the government does care about you, starting with the minimum wage, like you say, you know, who, who maybe economists, maybe some economists, and I suppose some employers don't like the idea of a minimum wage, but for the people who are working for a living, what's not to like about that? So, yeah, I think if he can seize on what used to be called, you know, the lunch bucket issues, the issues of how do we make a living? How do we get through life and make those democratic issues and convince American voters that those are democratic issues? Then the Democrats will have a chance of accomplishing the kind of things that Joe Biden wants them to accomplish. So as we leave here, um, where's your level of optimism? Be honest. Um, I will say I'm cautiously optimistic. I think that I think that the country is better than it seemed at times during the last four years. Americans, a lot of Americans do take their cues from what happens in the presidency. And to have a decent person in the White House, as opposed to a very indecent person who was there for the last four years, can start a change that I think, that I hope can spread to other areas of American life. So that's what makes me optimistic. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your time uh, today uh, to be on my podcast. Um, I've uh, been wanting to talk to you about this for some time and I too hold out a realistic hope. And I've been pleased with a lot of what I've seen uh, so far and not afraid to admit it as somebody who worked very hard uh, for to get Bernie Sanders elected. So, you know, but it won't happen without the work of all of us and everybody listening to this. It won't just happen just by sitting and listening to you and I talk about it. Right. Uh, this is going to take active citizen uh, participation here, especially in this coming year. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you for writing this great book, uh, Traitor to His Class, The Privileged Life and Radical Presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, it's a great book, everybody. Um, uh, give it a read. And, and check out uh, Bill's other works, too, uh, equally important. Thank you um, for what you do. Thank you for teaching our young. And, um, and uh, please come back and talk to us again sometime. You keep up the good work yourself, Michael. Uh, we're all in this together. I hope that's everybody's, everybody's position right now. But thank you. Thank you. Uh, sure. H.W. Brands, traded to his class. So much uh, to think about here and so much to do. I have just one more thing I want to I want to share with you before uh, we close today. Uh, before we do that, I want to also give a shout out to our other underwriter for today's episode, uh, Express VPN, and thank them for uh, supporting my voice and for supporting free speech in general. And let's just talk about free speech for for a second. We have amazing technology and uh, brilliant tools available to us to communicate with one another like never before. Yet, as we know, control over these tools are in the hands of very few and very powerful tech giants who get to decide which topics, which ideas, which films are out of bounds, and which ones are not allowed on their platforms. 
I personally have been through that uh, with um, Jeff Gibbs's film, Planet of the Humans. But listen, whatever your politics are, we should all fight for each other's right to express ourselves freely. And when I say freely, yes, I know you're thinking, no, 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 wait, some of that stuff, the, the lies, the, yes, I think the Supreme Court was very clear when it, when it said that free speech does not mean you get to yell fire in a crowded theater when there's no fire. That would be a lie, and it's a lie that puts people's lives in jeopardy. So we all get that. But listen, this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our right to express ourselves freely and to fight back against big tech's control of the internet. So because of that, I am suggesting that you support the underwriter who's supporting us today, and that's ExpressVPN. You've heard me talk about them. You know, I'm telling you, these tech giants, you know how they make their money, right? They do it by tracking your searches and video history and everything you click on, and by building a profile of you and me, and then selling off our sensitive data. Now, when you use my good friends here, <laughs> ExpressVPN, if you use their app on your computer or phone, it hides your IP address from these tech giants. And that makes your activity more difficult to trace and to sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you and me from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. Plus, it's easy to use and it takes just one click to protect all of your devices. Secure your internet with the best VPN for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash rumble. Okay, that's, I'll spell it out for you. Express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V, as in Victor, P as in Paul, N as in Nancy, dot com slash rumble. Don't forget that part. Because if you do that, you get three extra months for free with our exclusive link here from Rumble. So go to the people that support this podcast and protect your data from these people that have no business to it. Go to expressvpn.com slash rumble right now and you can learn all about it. Before we go, I want to I want to play some audio for you from um, Monday night, and it was so mo moving for me to listen to this. It was an Instagram live uh, with uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and she, for the first time, told the public what happened to her on the day of January sixth when the terrorist attack took place on the Capitol from right-wing extremists, Republicans, etc. And, um, and what, what she, what she had to do and what she went through in terms of, of at some point believing perhaps that her life was over. Um, I want you to listen to this. It's, it, it doesn't last long. It's not the whole, it's not the whole IG live. It's, it's, you know, 12 minutes of it. Um, but in case you haven't heard the whole thing, you probably have maybe heard a clip or two of it on cable news someplace or whatever, but I want you to listen to this, this piece of her story. Um, she began her live uh, broadcast on uh, Instagram 
by um, telling all of us that she, like many, most women at some point in their lives, in her life, has been a victim of uh, sexual assault and, um, and that she carries that trauma with her uh, to this day. And the trauma of the week of January 6th for her actually started, it started rising and beginning on Sunday of that week. On the uh, on the third of January, where she started noticing MAGA people in her neighborhood, MAGA people at the at the grocery store, at the drugstore, whatever, wherever she went, there they were. And she thought it a little strange. She knew that there was going to be a demonstration on the sixth of January, um, but she didn't really expect to see them. I think until then, like nobody did yet. Of course, the Capitol Police and the FBI and everybody knew in advance because they had been following the exploits of these crazies. Uh, they knew exactly what was going to happen. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. She, over the next couple of days, on Monday and uh, Tuesday, and the 4th and 5th, um, would run into groups of them. They would harass her. They wanted to get, uh, they wanted to, challenge her with her iPhones running, uh, videotaping her. And uh, she got increasingly nervous about it. But by Wednesday, the 6th, the day after the Georgia election, she was actually in a pretty good mood, thinking, well, you know, they may be upset. They, they all lost, but um, we've got both houses of Congress and the White House. So she was feeling pretty good on Wednesday, the 6th. And it was around uh, late in the noon hour, and she was back in her office in the uh, one of the congressional office buildings where Congress people have their offices. And she was there with her legislative director, uh, who she refers to as G. That's his. That's the first name that he goes by, G. And he was over in his side of her office, so in another room. Uh, in his legislative office, and she went into her office where her desk is and everything, and um, she decides to order them both uh, some lunch and goes online to see what to order in the neighborhood. And all of a sudden, she hears uh, this noise, and she's getting texts from people to telling her to take cover. Um, uh, they've broken into the Capitol. This is like around 1.15, 1.20 in the afternoon. And um, so um, I'm going to let her kind of pick up the story from there and tell you what happened. And, um, and then the piece I'm going to play for you ends as she and, uh, and G um, are told to run from the building to another building to take refuge. Um, I'm going to end it there. You can pick it. You can go online and, and hear the whole hour and a half of this incredible, incredible, sad and disgusting and terrifying story. She ends up in Katie Porter's congresswoman from Southern California in her office, taking cover with her. Um, so if you listen to the whole, whole thing uh, on Instagram, you can go there and listen to it. But I'm just going to give you 12 minutes, 12 minutes in the life of uh, one of our most important members of Congress, a voice um, for the growing majority in this country. 
and um, um, it won't be video, obviously, because this is my podcast. It's just going to be, but I think you'll get you'll get in the audio enough of of what it was like for her. So um, let's play this. Let's play this right now, and then I'll I'll come back uh, on the other side of it here at the end of it in ten twelve minutes or whatever, and and uh, and uh, give you my goodbyes. Okay, so here we go um, with uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, member of Congress from New York City. So that takes us to about one o one p.m., and I go back to scrolling through lunch options um, for what we're going to order. When all of a sudden, I hear boom, 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 boom on my door. And then I hear these huge, violent bangs on my door. And then every door going into my office. Just bang, bang. Like someone was trying to break the door down. And um, there were, there was no, um, no voices. There were no yells, no one saying who they were, nobody identifying themselves. And just boom, boom, boom. And I, I just get up like this and I run over to the legislative office and I run over to G and G just looks at me back and he just goes, hide, hide, run and hide. And so I, I run back into my office. I slam my door. There's another kind of like back area to my office and, um, I, I open it and there's a closet and, and a bathroom and I jump into my bathroom um, and I close the door and I just keep hearing these bang, bang, bang. And, uh, and I jump into my bathroom and I close the door and then I realize that I, the bathroom was the wrong choice. I, I should have jumped into the closet. And so I start opening the the, the I start opening um, the door to the bathroom so that I can sorry you guys can't hear me um so i start i hear these bang bang bangs and um i start opening the door to my office and um i start opening the door to my bathroom and i'm gonna run across um to the closet and sorry you guys said i'm muffled so let me repeat this part a little bit over again sorry this is a little hard to hear guys i'm trying to like as you know my phone keeps falling um, and so basically I go into the back and there's a bathroom and then there's a closet and I jump into the bathroom and I immediately realized that I shouldn't have gone into the bathroom. I should have jumped in the closet. And so I, I open the door when all of a sudden I hear that whoever was trying to get inside got into my office. Um, and then I realized that it's too late, that it's too late for me to get into the closet. And so I tried to kind of, I go back in and I, I hide back in. Um, 
in the bathroom behind the door. And then I just start to hear these yells of, where is she? Where is she? And I just thought to myself, they got inside. And so I hide behind my door like this, like I'm here and the bathroom door starts going like this, like the bathroom door is behind me or rather in front of me. And I'm like this and the door hinges right here. And I just hear, where is she? Where is she? And um, this was the moment where I thought everything was over. Um, and the weird thing about moments like these is that you lose all sense of time. Um, in retrospect, um, maybe it was four seconds. Maybe it was five seconds. Maybe it was 10 seconds. Maybe it was one second. I don't know. It felt like my brain was able to have so many thoughts in that moment um, between these screams and these yells of where is she, where is she? And so I go down and I just, I mean, I thought I was going to die. Um, and I had a lot of thoughts. You have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I think when you're in a situation like that, um, and like also one of those thoughts that I had was, you know, I just happened to, you know, be a spiritual person and be raised in that context. And I really just felt like, you know, if this is the plan for me, um, then people will be able to take it from here. Um, I had a lot of thoughts but that was the thought that I had about you all. Um, I felt that um, if this was the journey that my life was taking, that I felt that things were going to be okay. Um, um, and that, you know, I had fulfilled my purpose. Anyways, um, sorry guys. So anyways, as I'm hiding in this bathroom, I'm hiding in this bathroom, um, hearing these yells of these men or just this, a man, just one man going, where is she? Where is she? I start to look through the door hinge to see if I can see anything. And there's like a door here and there's like another door here. So I'm like, I'm like trying to look through two door hinges. Um, and so I look through this door hinge and I see this um, white man in a black beanie um, bump, just like open the door of my personal office and come inside the personal office and yell again, where is she? Um, and I have never been quieter in my entire life. I was just, I, I don't even know if I held my breath, but I was just 
you know, here behind there and I just start sliding down. Um, and then all of a sudden I hear my staffer G yell out. Um, and he's, he's like, hey, 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 it's okay. Come out, come out. So I'm like, I don't know, so deeply rattled. I'm still processing the edge of my life when I come out. Um, and I come out and this man is a Capitol Police officer. But the story doesn't end. Um, it's a Capitol Police officer. There was no partner, was not yelling, you know, Capitol Police, etc., etc. But then what, but then it didn't feel right. Um, because he was looking at me with a tremendous amount of anger and hostility. And um, things weren't adding up. Like there was no partner there and there was no one was yelling. He wasn't yelling like this is Capitol Police. This is Capitol Police. And he was looking at me in all of this anger and, and hostility. And at first, you know, in in my brain and in my mind, I'm thinking, OK, I just came from this super intense experience just now. Maybe I'm reading into this. Right. Like maybe I'm projecting um maybe I'm projecting like something onto him that, that like, maybe I'm just seeing anger, but maybe he's not trying to be angry. Um, but I talked to G, my legislative director after the fact, and he said, no, I didn't know if he was there to help us or hurt us either. And, um, and G was actually like, th this man came with so much hostility that, um, that G was sizing him up and didn't know if he was going to have to fight him. Like that is how, that is how like aggressive the situation was in that moment. And we couldn't even tell, we couldn't read if like this was a good situation or a bad situation. Um, it was so like, you know, like so many other communities in this country, like just that presence doesn't necessarily give you a clear signal if you're safe or not. And so the situation did not feel okay. And then he just looks at me and yells at me and he just goes, go down and then go to this other building. Um, I'm not going to like name the specific building, but he basically says, go down and go to this building. But he just says the name of the building. Doesn't say anything else. But we're so rattled in that moment. And he the situation felt so volatile with this officer that I run over, I grab my bag and we just start running over to that building. Now, mind you, um, we weren't escorted. He didn't like come with us or follow us um, or anything like that. So G and I just start running to this other building. We run down and we run to this other building. And it wasn't until we get to that building that we realize he didn't give us a specific location. 
Um, he didn't give us a room. He didn't give us a place to go to. He just gave us, he said, go down. He told us to go to a certain level of a certain building. And that level of that building was street level. And so we can hear um, because the buildings were not secure yet. Um, and this is around the time when the Capitol was being stormed. Um, that we can like hear all of these rioters behind the glass of the doors. <laughs> you know, and we have no specific location to go to. We're in the hallway. We're in like, like the Dunkin Donuts of the basement. And we don't have any secure place to go. And they ran to the other building and didn't know where to take cover because the so-called police officer um, who never identified himself um, didn't tell them where to go. And they passed by Katie Porter, Representative Katie Porter's office, a congresswoman from Orange County in California, ran in there. She was there, um, and they decided to hunker down with her, and they all hid out in that office, their, her staff, uh, Katie's staff, and, and also Alexandria's legislative director, G., for the next four or five hours until it was safe. They kept waiting for the National Guard to come, never came because it was blocked. We, we'll all get the whole story from this. We know most of it right now, but um, uh, more is being dug up. Eventually, they went back into the halls of Congress, all the members and the senators, and they voted uh, to accept the will of the American people to certify the votes. The majority that voted for Biden and the majority that put the the, both the Senate and the House in the hands of the Democrats. There were 147 Republicans, though, that voted not to accept the votes of the American people. 147. They're called the Sedition Caucus, and um, their names, um, uh, we will have that on our site here. The names of the 147 that voted not to accept the votes, specifically that night uh, from the people of Pennsylvania and Arizona that put Joe Biden over the top. Um, they went on after, after that horrible attack, these Republicans, to give the terrorists what they were demanding, to stop the vote of the American people. My member of Congress, Jack Bergman, um, in Michigan, northern Michigan, he's one of the Sedition Caucus people. He's one of the people that decided that he would decide who the next president should be, not the American people. So, Jack, we got your number. You're up for re-election next year. Uh, good luck with that. Um, my thanks to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for sharing that story with us. I, When I was listening to it and I was watching her, I... I um, I have to be honest, I broke down. I've been in those situations when you think this is the end, when they're coming after you, sick people with weapons, and then the police and the military who support them. Um, it's not a good place to be. And I felt every inch of her, her pain and her fear. Um, and the good news is, She's still with us. I'm still here. You're still here. Uh, we're not going anywhere. We got work to do. 
and um, and Alex's good spirits and uh, good heart will go a long way to helping us get the things that we want done in the United States Congress. And um, and I want her to know that we have her back. That's not just rhetoric. Um, we will all together join together, all of us, to protect anybody who stands up for us. And we will do our best to stop those who are full of violence and hate and racism. This is not your day. Those days are over. Accept it. Accept it and move on. That's it for Rumble today, my friends. Thank you. Thank you to H.W. Brands, the author of Traitor to His Class, the excellent biography of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, thank you to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, for letting us share uh, her story of what happened on January 6th. And thank you to all of you for participating uh, in this podcast and supporting it, supporting me. Um, and we've got, as I said, we've got a lot of work to do, but I'm up for it. I know you are too. So thank you. Thanks to our executive producer here, Basil Hamden, um, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, and to everybody else who had any role uh, in making this episode possible. I appreciate it. I will talk to you very soon. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. He took off his on a crippled leg And he said to one and all